You wonder why most of the corporate media are ignoring Balenciaga creating advertising centered around sexualizing children? Because the elites have grown comfortable in their belief they know which stories the public can properly digest. If they can use their multi-million dollar influencers to convince you that a movie poster tweet is a hate crime worthy of censorship and suspension, why can't they conclude sexualizing children is no crime at all? It's Voltaire. Anyone who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Controlling what we can say is a means of controlling what we think. Anyone who doesn't understand the importance of protecting all speech, including speech we find reprehensible, is an enemy of America. Welcome, welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Uh, happy Wednesday, happy hump day uh, to you and yours. It is the day after Tuesday, it's the day after uh, we had an incredible one-on-one uh, -on -one interview conversation with uh, Bishop uh, Nathaniel from uh, Israel United in Christ. Uh, that was a great show. We're gonna follow up on that today with uh, a continuation of that conversation. We're gonna have Pastor Anthony Walker and uh, Virgil Walker from G3 Ministries at the and during Tennessee Harmony. They're gonna give me a review of the interview and the discussion and their take on what they heard from Bishop Nathaniel, things I got right, things I perhaps got wrong. That will be our Tennessee Harmony discussion, a review of my conversation uh, with uh, Bishop Nathaniel. Uh, but we're gonna start the show talking with Royce White and then TJ Moe. That's also gonna be a continuation of yesterday's conversation about free speech and the importance of protecting free speech. I think that has been uh, undervalued, free speech has been in America, and so I'm gonna expound on that in my fire starter uh, to, sh to start the show and to get, to get us rolling into conversation in today, and then I'll bring on Royce White and TJ Moe to help me do that. Uh, but before I do any of that, <laughs> I wanna talk about food. I wanna talk about Good Ranchers and my good friends at Good Ranchers. Uh, you guys know Christmas is coming. It's just around the corner. Uh, taking away someone's inflation, their meat inflation, what a great gift that will be. You can't control people's gas prices. You can't stop you know, all the other things that are skyrocketing, but you can control people's meat prices. You know how? Good Ranchers. During their exclusive special for the month of November and December, beef prices are expected to go up another 15% in 23. But Good Ranchers customers who use my code FEARLESS will experience 0% inflation all year long. That's because every subscriber locks in their price for the life of their subscription. If that's not enough to get you to subscribe, it's also, we got a Black Friday special. It's passed, but we still got one over at Good Ranchers. You can still get two free 12 ounce Black Angus New York strip steaks and two free pasture raised chicken breast with any order that uses my code FEARLESS. Head on over to GoodRanchers.com to find the perfect box for you in their curated selection of America's best meat and seafood. Give the gift of zero inflation and America's best meat to yourself or someone else this season. 
Good Ranchers' award-winning service and quality are why they have over 7,000 five-star reviews. Remember to visit GoodRanchers.com and subscribe with my code FEARLESS at checkout to grab that Black Friday special. Their best offer of the year and today is the last day to get it. Two free Black Angus steaks, two free pasture-raised chicken breasts, zero inflation, all with Good Ranchers, American meat delivered. Be a good soldier. Feed your little army brats. Good ranchers. All right, uh, <clears throat> let's get this fire started. Let's get this show uh, rolling. Uh, we're going to pick up where we left off yesterday or expound on what we uh, were talking about yesterday. Uh, a month ago, the Brooklyn Nets suspended one of their biggest stars, Kyrie Irving, for repeatedly failing to properly apologize for tweeting an image of a documentary movie poster. According to the Anti-Defamation League, the NAACP, Charles Barkley, Shannon Sharp, Stephen A. Smith, Ben Shapiro, and countless other establishment pillars, black Hebrew Israelites and supporters of the doc Hebrews to Negroes pose a threat so great to Jews that Irving and rapper Kanye West are worthy of deplatforming and silencing. Never mind that no one watched the three hour and 30 minute doc. Never mind that most people have no idea what black Hebrew Israelites believe. Never mind that virtually none of Irving's critics called for Amazon to be punished for hosting and selling the anti-Semitic documentary. Free speech, the First Amendment, has so little genuine support in our social media controlled culture that few Americans think it's important to protect unpopular and misguided speech. Corporate media want to rewrite the U.S. Constitution. A hypothetical new First Amendment would guarantee corporate media's right to censor any speech it deemed misinformation. You know, stuff like criticism of experimental medical trials that are trumpeted as bulletproof vaccines. Hebrews to Negroes, is disinformation that we must protect from the impressionable ears and eyes of the American public. That's why no one has interviewed the producer of the documentary and the author of the book, Ronald Dalton. No one wants to talk to him. That's why thousands of black Hebrew Israelites could surround the Barclays Center 10 days ago when Irving returned to the court and no one in the mainstream media sought to interview the leader, Bishop Nathaniel, of Israel United in Christ. He organized the massive show of support for Kyrie Irving. The American establishment desperately wants to control what this country's citizens think, hear, and believe. This desperation is unprecedented in American history. It signals how far and how quickly we've pivoted away from valuing free speech and independent thought in America. I remember a time when Ronald Dalton and Bishop Nathaniel would be coveted guests on America's most popular talk shows. Yesterday I talked about Phil Donahue, the talk show father of Oprah Winfrey, built a massive following in the, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, interviewing the most controversial, polarizing, compelling, and misguided thinkers in America. He platformed Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan, KKK Grand Wizard David Duke, and anti-feminist author Shirazadad Ali, and so many more. He hosted shows debating and exploring whether, black, whether Jesus was black. We used to really believe in free speech. The American Civil Liberties Union used to protect free speech. 
Now the alleged freedom fighters fight for censorship. Establishment elites believe they can determine who should be heard and which opinions are worthy of hearing. That's why there's so much consternation over Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter and reinstatement of Donald Trump's Twitter feed. And that's why the establishment has hatched the term hate speech. Here's some news. Speech doesn't hate. Speech expresses. In a free society, speech must be allowed to run free and express whatever it wants. The alleged well-attentioned attack on hate speech is just another orchestrated attack on America's founding documents and rights. It's all an infringement on the First Amendment. Included in this attack is the move to define any criticism of Jewish people as anti-Semitism. In 2019, then-President Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis took action to fight anti-Semitism. Trump signed an executive order intended to ban anti-Semitism on college campuses. DeSantis signed a Florida bill, CSCS HB 741, intended to curb anti-Semitism. Trump's executive order and Florida's legislation were based on the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's definition of anti-Semitism. The definition includes these examples of anti-Semitism. Accusing the Jews as a people or Israel as a state of inventing or exaggerating the Holocaust. Accusing Jewish citizens of being more loyal to Israel or to the alleged priorities of Jews worldwide than to the interest of their own nations. Huh. America's First Amendment allows its citizens to hold uninformed, inaccurate, and abhorrent opinions. Kyrie Irving can think the world is flat. Nick Fuentes can think one million people died during the Holocaust. David Duke can think some American Jews are more concerned with Israel than America. Aaron Rodgers can think the COVID vaccines are ineffective. We cannot start legislating what people are allowed to think. We can restrict what people do, not what they think or say. Restrictions on thought and speech are un-American. These types of limitations foment bitterness, bigotry, and distrust. The limitations create a slippery slope that eventually censors topics as well as individuals. You wonder why most of corporate media are ignoring Balenciaga creating advertising centered around sexualizing children? Because the elites have grown comfortable in their belief they know which stories the public can properly digest. If they can use their multi-million dollar influencers to convince you that a movie poster tweet is a hate crime worthy of censorship and suspension, why can't they conclude sexualizing children is no crime at all? It's Voltaire. Anyone who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Controlling what we can say is a means of controlling what we think. Anyone who doesn't understand the importance of protecting all speech, including speech we find reprehensible, is an enemy of America. And that enemies list might include some people many of us respect. That's my fire.
I, I had to get that off my chest. I wanted to, we, we touched on it yesterday. I wanted to expound on it today. Uh, yesterday, it was just primarily me on the show with Bishop Nathaniel. We brought uh, Delano on at the end of the show to give his quick take on it. Uh, and so now I want to bring in some other fearless soldiers. Uh, we'll start with Royce White. Uh, Royce, uh, welcome back. Uh, to the show, and I, I just want to start with my contention that we clearly uh, don't value the First Amendment the way we used to in this country, and that's concerning, disconcerting to me. It, it's it's a, it's it's just another sign that uh, there's a movement to blow up our constitution, our constitution, and rewrite all of our rights. Uh, am I exaggerating? Uh, am, am I wrong about the importance of the First Amendment and free speech? I don't think you're exaggerating at all. You know, to be honest, you, you, you call it a slippery slope. I would say we're at the bottom of that slope, that the very people who make it seem like it's casual, their, their censorship of free speech are actually using that um, to, to cloak themselves from the, the evil agendas that they're, uh, you know, that they're uh, executing. And uh, you mentioned Voltaire, and, and that's a great quote by Voltaire. Another one is, show me the people who you can't criticize, and I'll show you who controls you. Uh, you know, so uh, I think free speech has taken a serious turn for the worst in the advent of the Internet. And we all were uh, sold this idea that this broad spectrum of connectivity worldwide uh, would would amplify free speech that to be able to talk across uh, you know miles and nations and worlds in an instant would effectively safeguard free speech. But what we've seen is that it's really uh, siloed people into a a sort of a sort of shooting gallery uh, where where we've overtrusted the people that run that very machine, um, and and those people show on a continuous basis that they're willing to. Uh, you know, rewrite what the Constitution is supposed to be, but even the human rights that we've agreed on on a world scale. You know, I look at somebody like Noam Chomsky, <clears throat> Noam Chomsky, who used to be or still is in many ways safely on what we would consider the left side of the political spectrum. And he said in 1970, very clearly, free speech means that you support the right to say things that you despise. You support other people's right to say things that you yourself despise. If you only, uh, you know, if you only support people's free speech, if they're saying things that you like, that's not free speech. And that's Noam Chomsky. Now, the catch to that is Noam Chomsky was also very critical of Israel, which is part of the reason why you could say even as a leftist, he has been kept from the public spotlight in many regards because he's a little too free thinking for them even on their side. You, you know what, you just brought me to a thought I, I hadn't considered, uh, Royce, in terms of uh, they have this vision of everybody holding hands around the world and we are the world, we are the children, and you know, the whole new world, new world order. And, and that, that is what the internet and social media has done. It's connected us to the whole world. And, and what it's done is diminished American values. And, and we start now thinking, well, how do our words affect Israel? How do they affect Russia? How do they affect Mexico? How do they affect 
So and so and so and now because we're all a part of this big international community, the fact that America has been a f fundamentally built around the protection of free speech, it has less value if you want to be a part of this global community because that's not the way they operate in Europe or that's not the way they operate in Canada or this place or that place. And you lose these fundamental freedoms that made America the greatest place in the world. And so, I mean, your statement about the co connectivity and being a safeguard for free speech is, is a powerful thought because anybody, if, if we had been thinking about it in real time and in a sincere way, we would know like, no, we start connecting up with all these other cultures and we start bending our culture to fit in with everybody else, we're going to lose some fundamental freedoms. And, and just if they can get the First Amendment, if they can get us second guessing ourselves on the First Amendment, they damn sure feel comfortable. They're going to get us second guessing the Second Amendment. We're already there. And that's why we already look around. Oh, well, this country, they don't have mass shootings because they don't have guns. Well, you know what else? They don't have our freedom. They don't have our opportunity. They don't have a bunch of things that make them want to rush into our country, even though we can all own guns over here. They live in them countries where you can't have guns, but they'd all still rather live here. I, you, you gave me a whole different way of, of, of looking at this in, in terms of like, this world that they envision is playing out over these social media apps. And you would have to be a nut to want the real world to be more and more like what we see over social media. Let, let, me, let me say it this way. A gun is a tool. Um, the, the internet is a tool. Free speech is a tool in and of itself. It's an intellectual tool. If tyrants can get all of your tools rounded up into one spot, then it becomes very easy to cut you off from those tools. It becomes very easy to control those tools. And while we view the Internet as this wide spectrum connectivity to people, individuals around the world, it's still all based on algorithm. It's still all based on a binary code. It's still all based on your internet provider and your ability to have electricity, right? So they, they still have all of the levers of that tool. They've just given us the illusion of freedom within it. And, and that's, that's a criticism that, uh, you know, that, that applies to many issues. But I want, I want to, you know, make, give you this as well. If you can't talk about people through their culture, and their traditions and their identity, it becomes very hard to talk about people at all. It becomes very hard to talk about history. And what us God-fearing people understand is that we are unique in that we are the historical being. We are the only beings, we are the only species that has history, that has carried history, something that the Jews did in a very profound way, 5,700-year-old tradition. So when you can't talk about that history, it becomes very easy for tyrants to give you an identity, to give you a culture, to give you new traditions, and to give you your history. So we are effectively seeing a society that's having our tyrants rewrite history while they tell us that we can't speak about certain history. It, it is the telltale sign of a society that's become dumbed down and has in large part accepted it. So going down this rabbit hole, 
free speech and and just what's happening to it and because I've been completely baffled by this Kyrie Irving deal baffled by the the reaction to a uh, Kanye West tweet and, and it's just taking me and and so I start going down this rabbit hole and next thing I know I run into Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis when I'm down this rabbit hole and I'm like uh, oh they're signing bills and legislation and issuing executive orders uh, where there's this agree well here's what anti-semitism is and if you say that a Jewish person perhaps has more loyalties to Israel than America that's anti-semitic and I'm like whoa really and so again it's like what's fair criticism because because I think everybody'd be very comfortable if I said, Man, I, I, I see some of these uh, civil rights or social activists, Black Lives Matter crowd or Al Sharpton or, or let's say a Louis Farrakhan. They're more loyalty, they're more loyal to skin color, their skin color, than they are to America. No one would bat, oh, you can say that. that that's fair criticism, that's all good. But oh, there's this special group of people that you can't say that about. And, and, and I'm like, why? Uh, because it, it, it's, um, it, and I love to make fat jokes about myself or whatever, but if somebody said I was more loyal to McDonald's than I was my health, uh, that's a fact. <laughs> and people should be able to say that. And, and, and people do have motives that supersede because trust me, my health should be more important than McDonald's. And anybody that lives over here in America and it benefits from American freedom should be more loyal to our constitution than anything else. But we know the reality is that's not the case and we should be able to talk about it. That's not offensive, that's not anti-Semitic. That's just like an open, robust conversation that we used to have in this country. And now I'm looking at people and I'm like, oh man, so this was the first moment. Again, I've, I like Ron DeSantis from afar, but there's a reason why I, I can't get all the way on board. I, I just got to know more. And when I look at uh, the legislation he signed, and then when I look down, I say, oh, Donald Trump doing the same thing. I go, this is why I don't mess with these politicians, man. I, I just don't trust them. Who's really loyal to America? Who, who, who's really loyal? And, it's like now I hear these people that are, that are asking like Trump, like, nah, man, we want to make sure Donald Trump is loyal to the whole American, America first agenda. And that starts with loyalty to God. And, and now I'm starting to understand why people are asking that question. It's like, and I, I, I tend to like Donald Trump, but anybody that's not loyal to God, and ain't loyal to these values that have made America great. I don't care who, I don't care what their name is. I don't like them. Absolutely, fair criticism. And, and Donald Trump isn't beyond reproach. You know, I'm, I'm one of the rising figures, you could say, in the, in the MAGA America First movement and have tons of support uh, in, in that group of people. Uh, and, and I believe in the movement. I believe that an America First policy uh, approach can actually bring this country back to a position of strength and security. Right now, we don't have that. I think that many of Donald Trump's views and policies and willingness to actually bring those policies has the chance to bring us back to that place. But he's not beyond reproach. <clears throat> 
nobody's beyond reproach. And and one of the things, and let, let, let me say this. I want to I want to help out with this Israel thing because I'm pro Israel. I'm pro all people in a very genuine sense, not in a kumbaya way. And a God has given mankind a gift, freedom, free will, human rights, inalienable rights. That written in our Constitution is a broad perspective that would uh, rightly apply to every society, every culture around the world and any future worlds at that. Because there's a question of if we go to Mars, what the Constitution will be there. But let me say this. We are told that the good guys won World War II, that we were the good guys. There were no good guys in World War II. There were soldiers on both sides that fought at the behest of an elite political agenda in World War II. We came out on top of that part of it. But there were no good guys at the big table up top in World War II, okay? And after World War II, the United Nations, the post-World War II democratic liberal order was the inception of what we now come to know or talk about as new world order. They never let you see the two right next to each other. They never they never speak of the post-World War II democratic liberal order anymore as if it's some fable uh, creature, a unicorn. It's right there in the charter. It's right there in the United Nations charter. And the Security Council for the United Nations is the military the military um, organization of this of this of the world and israel was the first it was the first was the cornerstone of the united nations and the security council okay and it is and has effectively acted as the west's america's military outpost in the middle east and its interest there is not israel's people it's not the Jews, it's not the white Jews, it's not the African Jews, it's not the Arab Jews. Our interest in Israel for a long time has been its, its position, its strategic military and economic position in the Middle East amongst the place where we were at war or are constantly in a, in a battle for oil. Now, we have since changed our direction or our, our, our motive or impulse around the Middle East and where we get our energy from. But that was the reason why the neocon conservative movement has been hitched at the at the hip with Israel. I mean, this is the one place where you this is the uniparty The the Israel issue is the uniparty issue. And this is why you see the elites, the establishment on both sides come to the table with the exact same storyline about Israel. And they want to say it's about the Jewish people. But well, I got no problem with the people in Israel. My call is the same call I would have for us here in America. It's the same call I would have for black people here in America, for the people there in China, for the people there in uh, uh, the Ukraine, for the people there in pick a nation, Venezuela, doesn't matter. There are elites within every group of people, within every nation, and we as the people, we the people from an American standpoint, must ask ourselves, are these people properly representing us? And if they're not, we cannot let a shared identity stop us from criticism. The people of Israel have to stop allowing the United Nations, NATO, the globalist agenda to use it as a, as a cudgel. Because if they don't, when war comes, we will leave Israel to the horde. And Israel will have to fend for itself. And Israel may be able to do a good job fighting that war. They've done it before. But 
that that's no promise for tomorrow. I fear for the people of Israel. I fear that the, the Western globalist agenda views Israel as a tool to be used to 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 wage a culture war and identity war and censor people while they while they foment or resent from Israel's enemies that will rise up one day and run over Israel. We couldn't protect Afghanistan. What makes us think that we could protect Israel from its enemies? Mm. Set a mouthful there. Royce, I want to touch on one other aspect of this. Uh, seem like a curveball, but, but it's not. It, it's all connected. Andrew Tate, kickboxer, influencer, deplatformed, another one of these people that, you know, can't be platformed. He's too controversial. He thinks too independently. He, he, he made some comments about Balenciaga that I found fascinating. And, and, and uh, it, it goes to like, well, hold on. Should this, Andrew Tate, he, he's passing out these kind of pearls and jewels of wisdom and insight and information. No wonder they deplatformed him. No wonder he's, you know, right there with Alex Jones and uh, Donald Trump, who, who can't, who aren't, no one's supposed to pay any attention to. But he talked about Balenciaga and how it, and Balenciaga for everybody knows what's going on here. They've created these advertising campaigns that sexualize children and showed them, you know, like holding teddy bears in bondage. And there's, there's some paperwork in one of these deals that's talking about child pedophilia or, or whatever. And Balenciaga is partnered with Adidas and everybody's, you know, it's Balenciaga is one of these it brands that uh, seems to have a strong, strong connection uh, to a satanic cult or a satanic philosophy. Uh, I want to play you a clip of Andrew uh, Tate talking about it and get your reaction. Satanists, people who worship Satan, believe in karmic retribution. They believe that they can suffer the consequence of lying and tricking you. So the very simple premise is this. If I sell poison apples and I write apples and you come and eat one, I poisoned you. But if I sell poison apples and I have a sign that says apples, they're poison and you come and eat one, you committed suicide. I haven't murdered you. You've committed suicide. That's what, that's what Satanists believe. Satanists believe by telling you what they're doing, they don't have any karmic retribution. I'm not responsible for the for the the constant. I'm not responsible for all the negative fallout from my actions if they understood what I was doing and allowed me to do it. This is why they show you and tell you what they're doing. If I show you and tell you that we are pedophiles and you continue to buy our products then you're supporting pedophilia and you're obviously okay with us being pedophiles. If I do it hidden behind your back, then you can argue and say, I didn't know they were pedophiles. But by showing you, I've shown you I'm a pedophile, you still wanna wear my t-shirt. So obviously what I'm doing is okay. And this karmic retribution model, the way that Satanists view the world, and when I say Satanists, I genuinely mean people Satanist, who worship real Satan. The people who are in charge of these brands and in charge of the Western world and in charge of the matrix genuinely worship Satan. When you understand the idea of karmic retribution, you can apply that to so many scenarios. They're doing this with everything. This Balenciaga thing is not just a messed up advertising campaign and stupid cookies and little hidden things. No, this, this is pedophiles telling you they're pedophiles. Genuinely in real time. And when they see you wearing their t-shirt, they're like, you know what? That guy supports me. So turn off the World Cup, burn your Balenciaga, do not shop there anymore. See, this is all connected to me. That guy, Andrew Tate, is 
public enemy number one deplatformed and he's dangerous. But Balenciaga, just like with Kyrie Irving, he's the bad guy. Let's suspend him. Let's make him apologize three times. But we're not going to say anything about Amazon hosting this alleged dangerous documentary. And, and I'm looking at people, corporate media is avoiding this story with Balenciaga. I'm looking at Kim Kardashian. Well, I can need some time to think and reflect to decide what I'm gonna do about Balenciaga. I, I, that seems to be everybody's approach. Well, we, we gotta give Balenciaga uh, the benefit of the doubt, but Andrew Tate, he's a bad guy. Kyrie Irving, he's a bad guy. The, uh, social media, we hop on them, but we're gonna keep buying Balenciaga. It's sickening to me. Well, shout out to Andrew Tate. I, li I like a lot of the things he has to say. He's got a very uh, unique and spot on cult cultural analysis. Um, I think he gets that halfway right. I don't know that Satanists truly believe in karmic retribution. I believe that there may be some sect of Satanism that has adopted, um, you know, uh, let's say a, a warped sort of Buddhist, uh, you know, mentality about about karma. Um, but but really what he alluded to and what I think he is getting right is the ultimate goal of Satan or Satanists is to get people to choose sin, to get people to choose to kill themselves. And I said that on the show before. I remember when The Washington Post did that huge article and I said what the NBA really wanted me to do was to kill myself. Right. And, and there's sort of a and, and the reason why and how he's getting this wrong. They're not worried about their own karmic retribution. They're trying to ensure the preclusion of repentance. They're trying to ensure that you are separated from God because to kill yourself means you can never enter the gates of heaven. So it's so that that's a sort of spiritual spiritual warfare at a deeper level. They're not worried about their own karmic retribution because they know that God is in, is, <coughs> is control of who enters the gates of heaven and who doesn't. They're not worried about being able to enter the gates of heaven at all. They've accepted their place with Satan in hell. They believe that they'll be able to have uh, uh, an elevated spot in the in the kingdom of hell right better to uh, reign in uh you know better to reign in hell than than serve on earth is their their mentality um but their ultimate goal is to get you to kill yourself so that you can never go to heaven so that your soul will be damned uh, and and i think you know th this is how this is how satan plays and the arrogance of man has has um really displayed itself in our inability to understand the supreme intelligence of satan Right. We we, we kind of believe that we we got them figured out. Right. You know, Satan plays four dimensional. We're still we're still caught up as men and women trying to put every idea and every conversation we have into a two dimensional frame. We want to put every single conversation into a black and white two dimensional picture. You could even say that we do that with our technology in many in many ways. We, we don't understand the four dimensions, and that's where the spiritual pride comes from. And this is where we sort of get this arrogant belief that we are smarter than Satan. No, Satan's 10 steps ahead of us, and, and I'll demonstrate that in this way. While Balenciaga may be a, a blatant sign of, of, of Satan's hand at work, let's think about the broad spectrum of what we've actually accepted as a people and as a, as a society. It ain't about Balenciaga. I mean, that's just him mocking you. What you've actually accepted in your life on a day-to-day -day basis for most people is radical materialism. He's just putting up a flag with the, with the Balenciaga deal. What, what does Balenciaga represent? What does this whole deal represent? It represents a sort of vanity, a sort of materialism that, that um, corrupts one's ability to dis discern morals and ethics properly. 
We've done that at the widest range possible. And Andrew Tate would even be, Andrew Tate would even be guilty of that because in his whole motif, he believes that money brings you freedom, that that uh, a sort of uh, economic sovereignty is the final stage of freedom. And that that's what his brand is. And I'm not I don't have anything against money. I'm not saying that people shouldn't make money. But the idea that money is what empowers you. Money is what gives you stability. Money is what gives you security. It's not true at all. And actually, the radical materialism is what is at the heart of the Balenciaga Satanist agenda. It ain't about the child pedophiles. It's the child pedophilia is going to come when you people don't pay a close enough attention to the children. Why do you not pay close enough attention to the children? Because you have your own vain ambitions to be God, to be idols, to be worshipped, to be liked, to be talked to like you're special. That's what makes you not pay attention to children. That's what makes you not pay attention to the long list of leaders who you still go to the teeth to get your morning coffee from that were right there on Epstein's Island. Never a question. How about the banks that financed them? You think you think Jamie Dimon and the entire Wall Street crew or the big finance crew never heard the murmurs about Jeffrey Epstein? Why don't we deplatform them? Why do people not go pull their money from the bank right now? Because they're afraid. They're afraid. You're afraid at home. You all. Not, 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 let's not talk about anybody. You, you're afraid. You don't want to have to be able to unplug from the system. And that's where Satan has you tricked. That's where Satan has gotten you to buy into the sin that will damn your soul. It ain't about a Balenciaga t-shirt. That's just him mocking you on the way down. Oh, look how stupid you are. You're act, you'll actually promote your own damnation. You'll actually promote the, 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 the damnation of your soul. That's what he's doing with that. He's just mocking you out in the open. But the choice you made is is at home. You know, in the Matrix, when the I love the scene where the Oracle goes, "Oh, you're not here to un, you're not here to make the choice, Neo. You're here. You already made the choice. You're here to understand why you made the choice. That's what I'm here to help you with. Why'd you make the choice? It's already been made. So, Royce, you said a lot. I got a lot to think about. Thank you. Uh, great job as always. Uh, you can email us and me, fearlessblazeshow at gmail.com. Uh, we're going to hear from the show me kid, TJ Moe. We are at a tipping point in America. With 400,000 children in the U.S. foster care system and a quarter of those awaiting a forever family, Christians must step up. This is Jack Graham, senior pastor at Prestonwood Baptist Church, inviting you to Chosen a summit addressing these urgent needs on Saturday, April 13th. Chosen will empower churches to begin foster care and adoption ministries and equip families who are adopting or fostering. We have great speakers joining me, including Sadie Robertson Huff and Governor Greg Abbott of the great state of Texas, along with dozens of breakout sessions. I urge you to join us and help make a difference in the lives of these precious children. Register at Prestonwood.org chosen. All right, welcome back. Uh, let's roll out to St. Louis, bring in T.J. Moe. Let's continue our conversation about uh, the price of free speech and, and why aren't we willing to pay that price anymore. Uh, T.J., I know you watched yesterday's show. You, you heard my mono. You heard my conversation uh, with Royce. 
Uh, I'm going to do it more general and easy. Where do you want to jump in on this? Anywhere you want to. I I would like to uh, hit on what the bishop said yesterday, maybe at the end. Uh, just a little bit, because I know you guys are going to hit that pretty hard with uh, Tennessee Harmony. But, the, you know, the the thing that I think about all the time is that leftists have just decided that in order for free speech to exist, everybody needs to feel comfortable. And it's just the exact opposite of the truth. The only way that anybody could ever experience growth is if somebody says something uncomfortable that would force you to look internally and say, are my positions correct? And I need to reevaluate. That was uncomfortable. Am I wrong or are they wrong? If you're comfortable all the time, it's impossible to grow. Um, You'll never know if you get to the right answer or not because everybody's just running the right way. You're you're never provided with an alternative. And so uh, there was actually a, I saw this right before I came on here. I'm not familiar with the girl, but apparently she was a former CNN reporter, Maria Ressa. She was on Colbert. She said 60% of the world is now under authoritarian rule. And she said that's because of social media and how it's come in. And they've used free speech to stifle free speech, which is literally impossible. That's it. I don't understand the idea that allowing Jason Whitlock to say something is keeping TJ Moe from saying something. That's insanity. If you, if you know, there was an idea, Elon was, um, talking the other day and and uh, arguing with some people about Twitter and what is allowed as he has been since he's taken over the platform and it's like the the thing that I keep coming back to is if you can't handle opposing views on Twitter get off of social media and go get a therapist I, I don't know what to tell you there, there are opposing views everywhere and we've coddled kids used to coddle them in elementary school and then through middle school you'd allow them to hear some more things and then into high school you're like hey we're getting to the place where you got to start hearing some things because you're going to college right it's like a silly example of this is my parents took away my curfew my senior year because they're like hey you're going to college you're gonna have to learn how to be responsible you're gonna start here your curfew's gone second semester of your senior year We, we used to allow that we've now extended that into the colleges you're coddled there and so you don't have to hear anything that makes you uncomfortable. And now we've extended it into the corporations and you're coddled there. You don't have to hear anything that makes you uncomfortable. And so we've reached this place societally where um, speech is fully controlled for comfort. And it's, it's not just for comfort. It's, it's for controlling the narrative. But the, the idea that they're pushing to the masses is comfort. I'm going to defend leftists for a moment. <laughs> And because, you know, I'm I'm older than you and there used to be a time like I mentioned the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. That's a leftist group that used to be aggressively in support of free speech. And so leftists used to really value free speech. Liberals, not leftists. Excuse me. Liberals, not leftists. Liberals. Yeah, okay. Just, All right. So, so they have devolved into leftism, and that is what now is this censorship, this this crazy idea, and it's people that were on. So, but leftists are totally different than liberals, in my view. Mm, I, so I, I I can't win that argument right now because that's a thought I hadn't thought about that leftists and liberals are different. So I'm going to change the deal and say liberals. 
used to defend free speech. And what has happened is social media has come in and has sent liberals down a completely different path. Liberals used to believe, because liberals, progressives, or people that believed in God or, or just fairness, they'd say all kinds of things that weren't supposed to be said in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s in order to try to uh, provoke the kind of change that would allow freedom and equality for everybody, and that was all good. And now social media has come in and redefined everything and told liberals like, yeah, I know you, we won freedom for black people and uh, equality for women uh, by saying things that you know were uncomfortable and blah, blah, blah. But now social media has come in and turned reality into a performance stage. And so we used to live in a world where sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. Now we have a stage called Twitter and Facebook where everybody can pretend like words damage them incredibly. You used to be on a playground and somebody was talking smack to you, and if you were to fall out and go, oh my God, I can't believe you said that to me. Oh, people would laugh at you. But you can go on Twitter and put on a performance like, oh my God, so-and-so said X, Y, and Z. I can't even get out of bed. The, the world must come to an end. There must be some incredible uh, retribution. And so I almost feel sorry for liberals that they've fallen for the act that's performed on social media. They've been hoodwinked and bamboozled. They're victims, to me, of the game that's being played in the social media matrix, and they've bought the performance. That that Because I look at people's tweets that act so outraged and so hurt, and I just giggle and laugh. And they're like, this guy's tweeting, he's probably sitting on the toilet, or she's probably sitting on the toilet, or yeah. who knows what they're doing, but they ain't really hurt. They're just playing against virtue signaling or whatever. And, yep. and some people have gone for the lie. And so to, to, to that degree that they've been hoodwinked and believed that, you know, my whole life needs to be built around making sure no one can go on Twitter or a social media platform and pretend to be hurt. I feel sorry for them. Uh, there was the, the there was a second part that you said as well that I, I but I, I'm old, man. I lost my train of thought. I can't remember what you said. I don't remember that. There is another part I want to hit on. If you think of it, come back to it. Let me know that there's a yep. second part of this that drives me insane. And that is that um, they're the, the CEOs of big tech and our politicians have decided it is acceptable to steal an individual's um, intellectual autonomy. Right. They say we have to get rid of Russian disinformation because you're not smart enough to figure out what's true and what's not. I'm smart enough for that. And it's like, look, Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and I always forget the guy who owns Google, the, the, the people who have started all these big tech uh, social media platforms. They were nerds with a good idea and had the ability to execute that good idea that have allowed the masses to communicate more easily. That's what they did. That's no small feat. And they did it. And that's great. Why then 
do people think that they, the people who just had a good idea and executed it, those people have a responsibility to become the arbiters of truth. That's what they're being told by the politicians. It's your responsibility to keep this stuff off the platform. And Zuckerberg and these guys should be throwing their arms up and saying, hey, I just write code. What do you mean it's my job to to tell everybody what is truth and what is not? Having a good idea and being the arbiter of truth have nothing to do with each other. You don't executing a good idea doesn't suddenly confer omniscience. You're not going to know everything, particularly when it came to COVID. We saw this terribly in COVID. They tried really hard, right? That was a real time experiment. Let's get misinformation off of the platform and what we can do is make sure that everybody does the right thing. Well, it turns out you said masks work. They didn't work at all. And people assumed they work, got close to perhaps your uh, 95-year-old person who uh, was overweight, had diabetes, and had one of the the four or five comorbidities it took to die. You wore your mask, thought you were safe. You got close, close to people and died. Turns out the misinformation was actually that masks were safe, right? And the vaccine stuff and the social distancing. They tried this in real time and were wrong about all of it. And so I, I can't figure out why people like you and I and the rest of the population are not insulted by people saying, you guys are not smart enough. All right. I will figure it out for you. And when people say, hey, trust the experts, this is what they do all day, every day. Well, how about the experts who the 50 former intelligence agent uh, officers who signed the Hunter Biden laptop and said, this is Russian disinformation. I know exactly what it is. And they signed off on it. Turns out it was all real. Right. And so how can how then can you trust the experts? The experts told us all the wrong stuff about covid. So I just I have no idea why people are not more insulted. Their intelligence has been hijacked. Their their intellectual autonomy, I should say, has been hijacked. You should have the ability to sort through a lot of information. A lot of it's going to be wrong. And you have to, when you're finished sorting through that, come up with a plan of action yourself as an individual. This is what America is about. And say, I'm going this way. This is what I think and what I believe based on my own research. And all of that research has to be available for me to make an informed decision. And the higher ups are telling us, no, you don't get to say any of that. Only I know. Well, Getting rid of disinformation is the same pie-in-the-sky utopian, hey, we're going to end racism. (laughs) Hey, we're going to end air, basically. And and, and again, it's it's all attached to, basically, we're going to detach ourselves from the Bible and from a biblical worldview, because again, if you accept the truth espoused in the Bible, you know when sin entered into the world and you know it's not leaving until he comes back. And so this whole little uh, myth that somehow we're, we're gonna end every, oh, we're gonna end racism, we're gonna end disinformation, people aren't gonna lie, people aren't gonna, The world has been operating with misinformation, disinformation, lies, unfairness, and blah, since the beginning of time. I'm not saying you throw your arms up and and just let, let people do whatever they want, but you do have to understand your limitations. And, Mm -hmm. and if, if misinformation 
uh, judged by corporate media was some kind of dangerous sin, I think it would have been covered in the Bible and, and, and would have been, <laughs> you know, there would have been some, there would have been somebody, Paul, somebody would have addressed, well, what happens uh, when, you know, the Russians try to steal the election or whatever? <laughs> I, I just, it's just stupid that you can't, People are going to lie and people are going to say false things and people are going to believe stupid things. I've believed right. so many dumb things in my life. Mm-hmm. So many. And, 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 uh, how did and you so is everybody else. How did you correct those? You were given better information and you said, oh, I, I was wrong about that. I needed to hear the better information. Well, what happens if the arbiters of truth decide that the better information is actually wrong and that's the stuff we're going to suppress? So you'd have been stuck with your old bad ideas, right? And that, that's where I'm well, sitting. What, go ahead. No, I mean, it's like a calculated thing. They're, they're doing it on purpose. They're not trying to put better information out there. They're just trying to put information out there that benefits them and their hold on power. Uh, and so, again, look, man, this is why when you walk away from the Bible, when you walk away from the Constitution, again, as an American, Bible and Constitution found, we got a founding father, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and then we had a country that had some founding fathers, and we're walking away from all of their wisdom. The the founding fathers of this country told you from the get-go, don't trust this government. Don't trust the government. They told you from the get-go, and they (laughs) built a system, put it in place, like, this whole system designed so you won't have to trust the government and we try to limit the power of government and individuals because people are bad. You know why we know that? Because we read the Bible and we know that what happened in the garden and, and so let, let's limit the power of all these individual people and p- put a system in that no one's relying on the government. And so I, I'm, we don't trust the founding father and we don't trust the founding fathers and we got this chaos. That's exactly right. And so we're talking on a on a social level right now about what should be acceptable in the First Amendment and free speech, because obviously Twitter, the way Section 230 is written right now and Facebook and all of the tech platforms, YouTube has got a campaign going right now. Tim Poole's been talking about it where they're trying to actually get people to defend Section 230 because they want it to stay the same so they have ultimate power. They're actually having meetings with their creators to try to go create that campaign right now. But on a political level, on an actual legal level, um, we have evidence I think that will be coming out. I mean, it's already come out, but I think it's going to come out more legally. Uh, My attorney general, uh, future United States Senator Eric Schmidt, is in the process of suing the Biden administration. We have emails from the White House to Twitter asking why Alex Berenson still had an account during COVID. They said, hey, man, why is this guy talking? That's actual violation of the First Amendment. That's suppression of free speech. And so... it's one thing for Jack Dorsey to say, I don't want you on my, on my platform. It's quite another thing for Joe Biden to say, I don't want him on your platform and I'm the president and do what I say. So that's, that's incredibly problematic as it sits. And that, that's instructive about how far we've gone because they've, Mark Zuckerberg was on with Joe Rogan a couple months ago and said, oh yeah, we were in constant uh, contact with 
government officials during COVID because we wanted to have all the right information and they provided it with us. And so we made sure that, that the people that they didn't want on there weren't on there. I was just open and honest about it. Like it was no big deal. He's like, yeah, we violated the first amendment. What's the problem with that? And so on a legal level, I, I hope to, that we get to, um, get to a place where these lawsuits are doing something. The, the last thing I've been thinking about uh, as it relates to all this and, and this, bringing it back to the, the bishop you had on yesterday, the, the people who I seriously disagree with um, for some things, for instance, I'm aware of our audience. They Every time I bring up Alex Jones's name, they say Alex Jones has been right about a lot of stuff. So I'll acknowledge Alex Jones has been right about a lot of stuff. He also said that the Sandy Hook kids were not actually shot and they were all actors, right? I seriously disagree with that, right? Um, but these are the people you have to allow to talk. Nick Fuentes, it takes five seconds to hear him talk to say, oh, this dude's a nut, all right? I don't agree with that. But when you do something and you... They're gone from all the platforms, and all you ever hear is, these people are gone, Nick Fuentes, he's bad. My first instinct is, well, why is he bad? And why do you get to decide if he's bad? Why can't I hear it for myself? What are you hiding? And that's what we do to all these people. Yesterday was excellent, because what I saw from the bishop was a, a, a guy who had to explain his really bad ideas, and he had an hour and a half to do it, and he hung himself. It, it's like, talk a little bit more, because you're explaining people out of supporting you, in my view, I think most rational people would not hear a lot of what he said yesterday and, and say, I buy these ideas. But if all you heard was, hey, black people are the real Israelites and you never let them speak, you'd think to yourself, well, are they? They might be. I've never heard anybody try to defend it. They've never had to. They never get to. And so it, it is seriously problematic to me um, giving people those platforms and giving them more space to speak will allow the better ideas to prevail. If, if, if you don't ever give them that space, then you have people like me who are skeptics because I know that a lot of good information is being hidden, wondering if they're the ones that are actually correct. That's a great segue uh, to Tennessee Harmony uh, because uh, Pastor Anthony and Virgil are gonna give me some expert opinions on my interview yesterday with uh, Bishop Nathaniel. Uh, I thought it was an important conversation. I'm glad we had it. Uh, but I also want to hear from, we, we heard from Delano yesterday and now you, uh, but you know, Anthony and Virgil are experts. And so we'll hear from them next on Tennessee Harmony. Welcome back. Uh, time for some Tennessee Harmony. Uh, Pastor Anthony Walker uh, here in studio with me. Uh, Virgil Walker uh, joining us uh, from Atlanta. Guys, uh, thank you so much uh, for joining me on this Wednesday as, as we've been in Anthony's every Wednesday and Virgil, we're making you a part of this. Really appreciate you guys today. Uh, after my interview with uh, Bishop Nathaniel, uh, I was telling Anthony Virgil uh, that uh, all yesterday as I'm having a conversation and doing my best, because you know the guy has certainly read the Bible many times and has certain scriptures memorized, and you know, uh, and you know, I'm not on that level, uh, but the entire time I just kept thinking, I was like. <laughs> 
tomorrow I got Anthony and Virgil. Uh, they'll fix any mistakes I might make uh, during this conversation. And so, uh, guys, thank you for joining me. Uh, Pastor Anthony, if you could uh, bless our conversation, we'll get rolling. Father God, we're thankful for this day and we're thankful for uh, your word, your word, which was from the beginning and your word that became flesh and dwelt among us. It's the same word that will sanctify us. So, Father, we pray that as we discuss that we let your word reign supreme. We're thankful in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Uh, so I don't have a specific question for you guys. I just want to start with a general one. Uh, what did you guys think? of uh, Bishop Nathaniel and our, our conversation. Anthony, uh, you go first, then we'll head out to Virgil. I do believe that, uh, like Delano said, he believes what he believes. He's confident in that. Uh, I think it is uh, not totally biblically sound, um, but it is convincing. It is comforting to people who are trying to resolve how do we deal with history uh, as it relates to black people in America. So that kind of theological approach does comfort and soothe that, gives an answer to, and maybe even a, a direction to how to handle their anger. I, I just don't see that jiving with the message of Christ. So good job on the interview. Uh, I, I commend you on your composure doing it all and, and, and listening to all the different points, you know, there were several points when I was watching it where I was like, man, I'd like to, you know, somebody ought to say, but hey, you let him give his peace and you responded in kind with really some good, logical, sound questions. I think the very best question you asked was about John 316. Like that is um, in preacher circles and in, in Christian circles, that is a verse that we like to say is the gospel in one sentence. So you ask him a question about this, this pivotal, uh, paramount verse. What does this mean and how does this relate? And uh, so very good job. Uh, I can't take uh, full credit for John 316. Uh, Delano uh, texted me uh, during the interview. He was watching the interview. You got to ask about John 316. It, it, it is one of the verses, like, I do remember off the top of my head, you know, it's, it's, it is a fundamental, uh, foundational uh, scriptural verse. But anyway, uh, Virgil, uh, what did you think? Uh, again, Jason, thanks for, for having me on. It's always a joy to be with, with Brother Walker, Pastor Walker, uh, uh, Walker and Walker. Um, I, I thought, <laughs> Jason, for somebody that, that you know, you always... Uh, give give credit where credit is due about those who know scripture well. Uh, you're always, you know, very kind of enigmatic as, as far as you, you, you want to say, hey, I, I don't know scripture well. I thought you handled yourself brilliantly. Uh, where scripture was needed, I thought you brought that to the fore. Um, where, you know, where the questions were asked uh, of him, I thought you brought those logically, soundly, uh, separated from any kind of emotion uh, attached to it, just hey, here's a here's a question. I, I loved how you started out by by just saying, you know, I, I'm a I'm not a biblical scholar, but I wasn't taught these things back in the day. I didn't have a problem with with white Jesus. I didn't have a problem with those were not things that I was taught. Uh, what you were doing as you addressed that was you were you were destroying the the, the narrative that he was trying to frame as the as the experience for all, all black people. 
Um, and, and so, you know, if they can, if they can identify, if the person can identify with the narrative uh, that that Bishop Nathaniel was 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 promoting, then th- th- he would have an open door to to to, to again continue his to, to continue the conversation. I, I thought you handled that incredibly well. Um, you know, th- there's a lot more to say about that, but I'll, I'll, I'll open with that from a standpoint of, of of the interplay between you and him. I was glad that you brought him on. I thought that that it, it's important. I, I love the Donahue reference that you gave, where Donahue brought all people on. And uh, you you gave the guy an opportunity to to, to share what he did, and and I think he did I, I think he did a fantastic job of representing his worldview. I disagree with it wholeheartedly. I absolutely reject it. But but you gave him an opportunity to explain it uh, without interruption at points, um, and and, uh, and and I think that that's the fair way to, to handle this kind of situation. I, I want to piggyback off a comment you made, Virgil, in, in terms of of. Uh... I guess why I handled it the way that I did is, is because I, I do believe it's important to engage with people disp- regardless of whatever my position is. As a journalist, I'm interested and want to know why people think the way they think or believe what they believe. And, right. and, and so rather than demonize uh, Bishop Nathaniel and Israel United in Christ. I kind of want to understand them and not just throw rocks from afar. Uh, And that's what journalists are supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, why I'm following up today with people that are experts in the field. And let's get a different take uh, because, you know, he's rattling off scripture and he he he. has a, a, a worldview that to me came across that, that, and this is where I really want to piggyback off you in terms of there's a rhetorical method, a, a, a sales pitch that is, hey, you were all taught this or we were all taught this as black people, and it may resonate with us on an emotional level. Yes. But is it accurate actually? And that's, right. and, and so I throw emotion out. And, and so when I heard him say that, the first, I was like, well, hold on, man. That's not, when I was going to 25th Street Baptist Church as a kid, vacation Bible school, any of that, we weren't sitting there having debates about black, white, whatever. We were sitting there learning about Jesus, the sacrifices he made, why God did it. Uh, what it meant to accept him as your Lord and personal savior, the salvation and grace that comes from that. I was, and again, I just kept telling him, I was like, I I wasn't told that Jesus was white. Were there images of a white Jesus uh, customary in the seventies when I was growing up as a kid in churches and even in homes? Yes, that was customary, but that wasn't my belief. And it wasn't what I was taught. There was never a sermon or any teaching that I was where there's like, well, Jesus was white next Y and Z. What I was actually taught and I was trying to convey because I think it's consistent was like I was taught I was an image bearer of Christ. And when I was taught that I interpreted that as, oh, man, I must look something like Jesus. (laughs) I must look something like God. And and. 
it, I guess as a kid and even as an adult, I don't blame white people if, if they hear that they're an image bearer of God sure. and think, Jesus must look something like me. I, I, it just, I don't blame, because we all probably look a little something like it. I, I would think that, I don't know. And yeah. so I, I just, so you can hit people with that belief that you were taught X, was I really? Because that's not what I was taught. You know, Jason, I, depending on the camp and depending on the different groups of Hebrew Israelites that approach you, some the, the one thing that's kind of common is this approach of you don't even know who you are. Right. And that puts you in a stance of skepticism, of shock, of emotion, like, wow. And then you begin to look at, well, man, you know, past my great, great, great grandmother, I don't remember. And now you're susceptible to, well, well then who? I, I, I bet you think that Jesus is white, don't you know? Continue to go with this. And if you're not sounding, OK, wait a minute. What difference does this make or what? What's the greater narrative? They begin to pick up on some resentment, some anger that you may have. I was accosted in Atlanta. Uh, my family and I had taken a trip down there here recently. Uh, sorry, Virgil, it's your city. But we were you know, visiting the area with Martin Luther King and, and some guys in this purple garb come approach my family and I, you know, yeah, do y'all know who? And they're loud and boisterous. Now, I'm not saying this is the camp that uh, Bishop Nathaniel is uh, associated with, but sometimes it's like, wow, you're trying to make this big case that really stems from race. And this is a notion that we find biblically, not the racial component, but this component of I want something that identifies with me. If you go back and you look at when uh, Israel had just come out of Egypt and, and Moses is, is there in this meeting at Mount Sinai and he goes up with God, he's only gone for a period of time before they have constructed a golden calf because that was what they wanted. God didn't want us worshiping any imagery, any kind of statue, any kind of idol. I want you to worship me. But they, the people want it. We want something that's tangible to us. And so likewise, I just I just think about this, Jason, and I'll, I'll let Virgil get back in. But I just think about this. One of the things that Bishop Nathaniel said, if you look at this book, right, the Bible, and the first question you ask is, who am I? I think we're, we're not looking at the book accurately. Right. Here's a book written over a span of 1600 years, 40 different men, three different languages yes. that carries one story. If the question is, is not who am I? The question should be, who is Jesus? Because that's what this whole book is talking about. And so as we look at the imagery, like he said, you know, I see a white Jesus. I see it doesn't matter what color they paint Jesus. Because of our own tendency to idolize ourselves, if they painted white, there may be someone in this white spirit of mankind that feels a little bit better because he looks like me. If we paint a black Jesus, there's going to be some black folk that, hey, I feel it. Yeah, I think that's what Jesus. It really doesn't matter what color he is because the message transcends race, nationality, etc. 
But it just goes back to feeding this racial component, which gives way to how I feel about myself and how I feel about how others uh, look at me. Yeah, I, I totally agree. <clears throat> Three things I'd, I'd say in here. One is um, any image that you have of, of Jesus or or depiction of, of God, kind of what what uh, Pastor Anthony was was referencing with regard to the golden calf, any any graven image, any crafted image is a violation of the second commandment. So, you know, it, it, all, all those homes that you were in where they had white Jesus up or black Jesus up or whatever, <clears throat> all of those are violations of the second commandment and should be taken down. So if, if we start there, uh, we, we remove the narrative of, of white Jesus to begin with. So so sec- secondarily, you mentioned uh, kind of the, the, the way that he kind of flipped through scriptures and kind of went back and forth. That's that's part part of that is tactic. Uh, part of that is is uh, organizations like these are, are long on what I call eisegetical homiletic and, and, and really short on on exegetical uh, hermeneutic. Let me explain eisegetical homiletic. The homiletic is just the way that you, the, your cadence, your, your your diction, the way that you share, the way that you, it's, it, it's an art form to putting ideas together and saying things rapidly. And so you caught that. The eisegesis part is the reading into scripture a specific narrative. So what you have is an organization who's long on having a, having a slave narrative, having a narrative about suffering. Jason, you identified it when you were, when you were interviewing him. His identity went back to to, to uh, Deuteronomy 28 and, and talking about issues of, of enslavement. So when when you read into Scripture, your own situation, uh, you know, slavery in America, you're reading that back as if Moses, when he was talking to Israel, had slavery in America in mind. So so you read that back into the text of Scripture and you add a homiletic to it. You add kind of a cadence to it rather than what should be happening, which is exegetical hermeneutic. The idea of extracting from Scripture what's there, recognizing it in its proper context, and not using portions of Scripture and jumping all over the pages to to, to add your own ideas to, to, to you know to, to together, so that your story then becomes what's important. I, I think that that's really the reality. Third thing I'll say, and 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 I'll turn it back to, to you guys, is every worldview, every worldview has to answer at least four questions: Who am I? Why am I here? What's wrong with this place? And how do we make things right? Every worldview, I don't care if it's Muslim, if it's, if it's Hindu, what you name, the, you name the, the ideology, the ism, and they all have to answer these questions. The problem is the, the, the audience that this kind of thing appeals to have not answered those questions. Young black men have not answered those questions or have a faulty idea of those questions. So when a guy comes along who's thought through those questions, and at least answers them, even if the answers are wrong, but he's confident in those answers. It sounds really powerful mm. to, to the naive mind. And so for, for the Christian, we understand. And Jason, you were hitting it out of the ballpark. When, you, when, when we talked about who am I, you said, I'm an image bearer of God. That's where my identity goes back to. Why am I here? I'm here as an extension of God's glory. I've been given dominion over the earth. I'm to glorify him and enjoy him forever. What's wrong with this place? What's what, what, Well, everything's wrong and it's the sin condition. Jason, when you kept trying over and over and over again to point him to this, it's, it's the issue. What's wrong is the issue of sin. And that issue is on the inside of me. He wanted to deflect. And, and he, while he gave a hat tip to the issue in here, he mainly emphasized the issue, the sin issue out there. And scripture is both a mirror and a window. It is first a mirror for us to examine our own hearts. And then we use it 
as, as a window to examine what's going on out there. He did absolutely the opposite. And then and finally, how do I make things right? Jason, you nailed it when you said John 3, 16. I don't make things right. Jesus Christ came. He lived a perfect life. He died a death on a cross. If I would repent of my sin and place my faith in him, things will indeed be made right. If not out there in the here and now, in here, right now, and for eternity. And so that's the narrative that we as believers in Christ have and hold. We understand who we are, why we're here, what's wrong with this place, and how do things get made right? We understand that. We bring that forward in a biblical worldview, as you do constantly on, on this platform. And, and we're not shook when we hear someone come with this false narrative of who they are and where they're from and why they're here. We, we, it doesn't. So, so you can have the interview in an open forum like you did without fear. Why? Because we know who we are. We know the word of God on which we stand. And, and we really have no reason to run from that. He... And, and you talked about, he quoted a lot of scripture, sure. but it, it seemed like it was, am I right? It was heavily focused on the Old Testament. That, that's one thing that they will focus on because they look at this through the lens of the law. And so they're going to, you know, feel a lot of that argument with Old Testament scripture. And then going off of what Virgil just said, the average churchgoer is not very steeped in Old Testament theology, Old Testament knowledge. So again, if somebody comes at you throwing Old Testament scriptures and mentioning the tribes and even, you know, in mentioning, you know, Deuteronomy uh, 2868, that's a pivotal verse for this entire framework that they have, uh, which says, and the Lord uh, will take you back to Egypt in ships by the way of which I said to you, you shall never see again. And there you shall be offered for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but no one will buy you. He quoted that several times. Yeah. Now, the only way that I could take that verse and apply it to the, you know, African slave trade uh, that, that we, you know, know through history, I'd have to change some words. I'd have to change some meanings. And I would have to break a lot of logical understanding just in that verse alone. Number one, he translated Egypt not as Egypt, which the verse is talking about, but as house of bondage. And so when we look at slavery as it was in America, oh, it was bondage. So now he's caught the ears of some others. The other thing is he says that you'll never see this again. Now, when Israel goes to the promised land, these were the commands, uh, blessings and cursings that God was telling them. If you abide by my law, you'll receive these blessings. If you don't, you'll receive these cursings. So they were in the promised land, which most people who are, you know, biblically sound understand that it is near and around where uh, Israel and Egypt is now. But if we were going back, that means that they would have had to leave Africa, go to this and come back again. OK, that's not what took place. And then lastly, the verse which they you know, make it seem as if this is talking about the American slave trade. He says that you'll offer yourselves as slaves, but no one will buy you when in American slavery were slaves put for sale and there was not a buyer. Like, it doesn't apply. 
but to someone who's not steeped in biblical study, who, as Virgil says, if I don't know a little bit of my history or I'm not sure of where I stand theologically, wow, this sounds good. But even Jesus mentions not just the Jew, but the Gentile in his ministry. In John chapter 10, Jesus is in a way rebuking uh, the former Jewish leaders. And he tells them about their leadership, that they uh, abused the sheep, the people. They uh, lost the sheep, the people. And he said he contrasts by saying, but I'm the good shepherd. Right. So he says, you guys were not good shepherds, but I am the good shepherd. But I want to drop to verse number 16 uh, and I'll let you respond to this. He says, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring and they will hear my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, to piggyback off the verse that Delano mentioned on yesterday uh, with Ephesians chapter two, where Paul says it was by the way of the cross that Jesus brings forth two people breaking down the middle wall of separation of partition and making one new man. That confirms what Jesus is saying here. He's talking to Jews, but is saying, I've got some other sheep that are not of this fold. He's talking about Gentiles. I've got Jew and non-Jew that at one point they're going to be one big flock. So I would really have to lean into the racial aspect. I would really have to distort a little bit of what the scripture teaches in order to feel this, to come to this interpretation. But then it also, for many of them, justifies their anger towards the white man. See, now this gives me not just a psychological finger to point at the man, but now I even have a biblical, if I read it that way, point to focus on the man when the Bible doesn't even deal with that. Uh, Virgil, was there anything scripturally that he said that stuck out to you where you thought he perhaps misapplied? Well, I, what I would see happening was, and, and, and I, think, I think Pastor Anthony nailed it, you're, when you read texts of scripture in rapid succession, and, and then before, before we even look at the context, in, in biblical hermeneutics requires an understanding of context, making observations of the text, you know, looking, looking at the text as a whole, uh, make, pr- providing proper application. You know, we, when, when, you, when you do homework like this, it's not a, I read half a text of scripture, flip the page and, and keep moving forward. It really is a time where you unpack all that's there uh, so that you can get the full measure of, of what's going on. Context, observation, you, you're making proper applications of the text so that you know exactly what's, what's, what's taking place. Uh, and, and what I would see was, was, a, was a homiletical kind of maneuver where we said something really rapidly, flipped to another page of scripture, and, 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 and it's a part of what, what's been What's, what's been practiced. It's a part of what, what they kind of do over and over again. And so that's, that's kind of what I see, what I saw kind of, kind of happening uh, as, a, as a result. What they have to lean into, the, the real question to ask, Jason, and you tried to ask this during the course of the interview, like, how am I better following your worldview? Like, how, what, what, what's, what's the benefit? And, and really, there was nothing. Uh, what, he, what he had to appeal to was this kind of idea that ethnicity is, is somehow salvific. That, that I'm saved by nature of being, of, of having brown skin. 
it's 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 the idea of, of an ethnocentric deism. You know, the black man is God, and, and then and then the reverse is the, the, the white man is the devil. Uh, and, and again, the problem with that, and Delano hit it on yesterday as well when when he talked about the fact that that the idea is contradictory because at the end of the day, at every turn and every turn of the page of, of history. The white man has seemed to be able to effectively subjugate the black man. And so if the, if the black man is God and the white man is the devil, the devil is winning a whole lot or the, the, the white man is actually God. Uh, and and, and w- the result of, of that, Jason, ends up being we, we, we bow the knee to this idea of sovereignty related to ethnicity. And, and that's that's totally that's t- that is a, an absolute rejection of, of the plan of salvation, uh, as, as Pastor Anthony talked about, the, the oneness that we have in Christ, the unity that we have as a result of, of what Scripture has to say uh, about these things. Uh, we've got to keep that in mind. We've got to keep the gospel central uh, and, and the word of God as, as, the, as the source. Virgil, I listen to you unpack that, and, and it's why instinctively I think I said to him, like, hey, man, what I was taught was uh, if I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and personal Savior, who should I fear? And that right. I can conquer and do everything. In the, and, and, and that's why they twist everything into, they, that's a strong generalization, but what, what I hear from the race idolatry of this is, yes. is they twist everything into uh, we are beholden to the white man. And, and it's, all, it's always struck me as like, that's crazy. Because everything about me that I believe, that I was taught from my grandmother to my mother to even my father who was not a man of faith, was like, no, 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 Jason, you and God are in control. God's mm. in control, follow his path, you're gonna be perfectly fine. Don't you be looking around for the white man, black man, your next door neighbor, you and God work things out. That's what I believe. Yeah. And, and, and so, but, but they have this thing like that somehow I've got some great fear of white men and don't want to get crossways with them. And, and it's funny when I hear black people say that to me, I think of all the white people that's like, we hate this dude. What are you talking about? I can't stand. He's scared of me. Why? You know, it, 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 it's comical, but I'm sure that there will be uh, some of Bishop Nathaniel's uh, m- members that will be watching today and, and perhaps will jump to the conclusion that we're just three black guys afraid of the white man. And yeah. So this is this is where, you know, and I'm okay with having a, a, a biblical discussion. I'm okay with let's just deal with the word, but where some of the psychology of this movement comes in is it automatically puts you in a position that either you're ignorant, which means you don't know where you came from, or you're brainwashed, which he mentioned several times yesterday, which is the theology that you were given that probably Virgil and I were given is whitewashed and that's all that we have the capacity to understand. So the only lens that I see the scripture is through what the white man has given me. And even if, and when you responded with, hey, I, you know, I didn't have a white minister, you know, my minister was black, my, you know, my family, my mother, my grandmother, you know, they were black. But the religion and the theology that they were giving you, well, that was whitewashed. 
and, and, I, and I, I just reject that based off of what the scripture actually teaches. Like it, yeah. the, if, if the only way that I can receive this is if I have an ethnic view of the scripture, mm-hmm. be it positive or negative. If I look at it as he mentioned, well, where can you find your people in the Bible? Mm-hmm. If I can't and he says, I found something wrong with that. I couldn't do it. So now, man, the whole book is just is just destroyed because I can't identify with the peoples in that book. I've glossed over their story. I've glossed over what Jesus came to do. I've glossed over the narratives that are so true to our people, no matter what race you are. And I just looked at it to say I couldn't find myself. what, What color are these people? And the thing that he held on to was Revelation 1:14, where it talks about uh, Jesus. And, and John, I always say this, anytime people run to the, to the book of Revelation, I, I, I get nervous about what they're about to say because John is having a spiritual, he's in a spiritual vision. So that's already some degree from literal words that we use. And then he's describing this spiritual vision in figurative language. So before I can read anything out of Revelation, I've got to unpack the figurative language. And then I've got to unpack what this means in the vision. And then I've got to unpack what that vision means to John, which is what I can learn from. So so if you give me just a second, Jason, let me show you this. Revelation 1 and 12 through 14. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the son of man. Now, the word lampstand here means church. This is figurative language. And then he says, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white. Now, now, Bishop Nathaniel, he said his hair was like wool. The text says his head and hair were white like wool. He's basically talking about the color. Daniel says that his his garments were uh, white like snow. He's describing the color, not the texture. But for a black person that's searching for identity in the scripture that relates to my physical identity. Oh, we got wool hair. Jesus must be black and had a fro. The text says so. And then it says his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burned or burning brass in a furnace. When you burn brass in a furnace, it is not brown, but it is glowing orange, white hot. So this image that John is painting of Jesus is a spiritual one. It's an imagery that it's, it's, he's using metaphorical language. It's white. He's glowing. His eyes were like fire. All of this metaphorical. But if I take that to be literal to say, hey, Jesus looked like me and you guys have been trying to trick me from knowing my identity and the power that I have, it only is going to feed in further distance from me and everybody else. Am I naive? And please correct me if I'm wrong, but I I think like my approach when I read the Bible is I try to almost see myself in every character in the Bible that I'm just a human being just like any of these 
people in the Bible and I could, oh, I could make this mistake or, sure. oh, I'd like to be capable of doing what Moses did or, mm -hmm. you know, I, mm -hmm. I, I, I could have been a drunk or I could have built the boat or I could have, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I tend to see myself or try to put myself in the position of everybody that's described in the Bible. But, it, but, but you're only doing that because of how you view yourself, though. You view yourself as a human being, as an image bearer of God. But if you view yourself as a black man and the images that you have in the Bible that you had in your congregation has an old painting from 1700s of the apostles and they're all white and Jesus is white, then for some people, they're going to have some distance to say, well, man, or if they were all white. Well, where were the black people during this time? Or where were they? And we miss that. So I would agree with you that, yeah, when I look at the stories, I should be able to capture the narrative, the lesson, the context, how this applies to me. But if I only see that through the lens of what the people look like, I'll miss the story. Yeah, Jason, Jason let, me, let me use you of that of that thought process. The, the Bible is not about you. It is not. It, 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 is, it, is, it, is, it is the revelation of God to us. It is God's special revelation to humanity of who he is. Furthermore, it is the, it, it is the exact representation of, of who Christ is. That's what this book is about. Now, it is written to us. And in so much mm -hmm. as we see the sinfulness of the human condition, Pastor Anthony has got this one nailed. In so much as we see the sinfulness of the human condition, we can point to ourselves and say, yeah, I'd probably do that same dumb thing that, that Moses did or that, you know, you name, you name the character. But at the end of the day, this book is not about you. And that's one of the things that the Hebrew Israelites get wrong. This is not about you. This is not about your race. This is not about your ethnicity. This book is a, is a revelation of God. Even, even the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is Christ's revelation to us. And so we, we've got we've to step away from that idea and really look at the scripture for, for, for what it is. The second thing I'll say, I love, I love what Pastor Anthony brought up as he kind of went through that. I, I'd spent some time in, in, as well in, in prep for this, looking at that same section of, of scripture with the white hair and the, and, and the, and the white wool and all of that. And, I, and one of the things I noted was that this is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. Mm -hmm. If you go back mm -hmm. to Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, and begin to look what that is, is that's Daniel's revelation of, of the God of ages, the, of God the Father, who is the author of the ages. And so what, what's being done here in, in this, in this, in this uh, theological way, in, in, this, uh, in this manner of speaking, is it's a connection that Jesus is indeed equal to the Father. It speaks of the deity of who Christ is. This has way more to do. There's so much more here. There's so much more richness than the minimization of somebody's skin color for the purpose of deifying some ethnic group. I mean, that's that's blasphemous. And, and we need to, we need to stop it immediately. That, that is not the direction. That is not what the book is about. That is not what the, the revelation of Jesus Christ is about. It's not about a black God or, or, or a black Jesus or, or, or that we're kings and priests in some, in, in some deified way, right? This is not that kind of program. Uh, so we need, we've got to stop that. that that's, that's not what the, what the book is about. Uh, th these folks, unfortunately, for, and, and, I, and, and like you, I, I want to be careful in, in generalizations. I'll say it this way. These ideas that are being put forth are, are really strong on emotional rhetoric and really short on enlightening revelation. 
like what we just talked about in the matter of, of, of a minute here, a couple of minutes, no one would have connected Daniel 7, 9 to to you know Revelation you know one where we where we see this where we see this impact of who Jesus is, apart from us taking time, I had to take the time, I had to pick up some some of the, some of my books and and unpack what Scripture is saying about these things. It's not some quick rant that I'm going to go off of and I'll start here and I'll flip the page back to here and and show you Shem and show you something else in in an effort to to, to make me or black people seem as if we're you know we're we're otherworldly. God is the only one who's otherworldly. He's the only one to be worshipped. Uh, and, and, and that's who we need to point to as we leverage scripture. Excellent. Excellent, gentlemen. Pre anything else you guys before we go? We got time if you want to, please. Paul says this, this is a worthy statement, worthy of all acceptation, which means belief. He says, Christ Jesus came to this world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Yes. He didn't come to save black people. He didn't come to save white people. He came to save sinners. Mm -hmm. And all of us have a sin problem and we're in need of a savior. So if you look out amongst you, whatever race, whatever nationality, whatever historical <coughs> background you have, you got a sin problem and you need a savior. That's a good note to end on. We'll play some harmony and we'll see you tomorrow. How did we end up so divided? Stop fighting and to be a nation, one united. Now we're headed for a downfall. God let your light shine down. What we need more than anything now. Harmony. Let's make a simple vow. Let's come together now. Harmony. Put all your weapons down. Love one another now. Harmony. Time for us to Tell